As we come to our time of uh, looking at the sermon text and the message this morning, uh, we'll be considering uh, the next chapter, beginning the next chapter of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 8, though the message is going to concentrate on verses 1 through 4. It's amazing how fast we're going through Timothy, just amazing. So we begin by reading 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first eight verses. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing to the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace, the grace uh, that is brought by your Holy Spirit to our time of, of listening to what your word has to say. Uh, the grace to understand scripture clearly. Uh, the grace to hear it with an obedient heart and attitude with a desire to follow through on the things that Scripture would teach us, uh, to be people of the book in every way, to follow our captain, our Lord, even Jesus, uh, to desire to be to this world uh, fruitful and bearing witness as salt and light, that we might be those who are effectively used for the work of your kingdom in this generation. This we would pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the subject matter of this passage is prayer. And I want to begin with uh, a story about prayer. It may be familiar to you. It's one of my favorite stories about prayer. It involves the life of George Mueller. Um, for many of you, George Mueller would be familiar, perhaps for some of you not. He was uh, born in Germany in the early part of the 1800s. Uh, became a con convert to Christianity as a young man, and upon his conversion, uh, began to earnestly desire to be a missionary to England. Now that's interesting, a German wanting to be a missionary to England, but this is the case. So he went to England, and God increasingly placed upon his heart's desire uh, that missionary work and endeavor with respect to the orphans that were in, uh, in Great Britain. E England had a lot of orphans. And so God actually used George Mueller to establish um, orphanage homes and schools for more than 10,000 orphans during his ministry life and career, more than 10,000. Now, here's what is significant about George Mueller. At the start of his ministry, because of the way God had answered some prayers so powerfully at the very beginning of his conversion, converted life, 
God placed upon Mueller's heart the desire to see that all the funding needed for his ministry, all the funding for these schools, all the funding for these orphanage homes, God would supply, God would provide, with the only one knowing what those needs were, God himself. Mueller had determined that he wouldn't advertise the needs for the school, advertise the needs for the orphanages, advertise any needs whatsoever for the salaries of the people he employed. He would simply take the matter again and again to the throne of grace. And he kept a very faithful prayer journal of all of these very concrete and specific requests that he needed. I need this amount of money. I need this particular provision. I need this to happen. I need this. I need this. I need this. He recorded all of those things, and he recorded all the times, every time, that God specifically fulfilled those prayer requests. Now, I'll tell you in a moment why God used George Mueller in this way, but here's one of my favorite stories out of his life. Um, there came a morning. The orphanage had 300 children, in which the um, house mother uh, came to uh, Mr. Mueller and said to him, uh, the children are dressed and ready for school and ready for breakfast. We have nothing to feed them at all in the kitchen. Nothing. And George said, uh, have them all sit down. And so at the head of the tables, he led out by thanking God for their food for that day. There was not a drop of milk. There was not an ounce of food in the orphanage at all. Within a couple of moments, there was a knock on the door. George Mueller went to the door, and it was the local baker. And he said, I don't know why, but last night I felt the tremendous concern to bake bread for the orphanage, and here I come with basically a truckload of bread for your orphanage today. George Mueller thanked him. Went back in. Second knock on the door, a few moments later, he goes to the door and is the milkman. And the milkman says, do you have need for milk today? My milk wagon has broken down. The time it would take to get the wheel fixed so I could continue would actually take so long that all of this milk is going to be spoiled. And George Mueller said, yes, thank you. And he brought in 10 large milk canisters that sufficient milk for all of the 300 children. Now, it is just typical. This was not unusual. This is not out of the ordinary for the life of George Mueller. Now, why do I share that with you this morning? You and I probably experience often in our lives with prayer the same kind of not meaning to be, not meaning to be this way, but the same kind of soft disbelief in the supernatural character of God to answer prayer in our day and age, like what had infected and affected the church, the people of God in England. They believed this Christian faith was true. They scarcely believed that God was any more acting in powerful and supernatural ways on behalf of his people. That's why George Mueller was raised up to present a recorded testimony over decades of his life and ministry that the living God is a God who does hear your prayers. He is a God who does answer prayer. 
And that was a great encouragement to the people of God to be faithful in their prayers. And so for us, that's why I begin and share this story with you. Because before we look at the passage, before we understand Paul's exhortation to Timothy to properly encourage the people of God to this matter of prayer, we need to hear this. Once again, believing that God is a God who hears prayer. God is a God who answers prayer on behalf of his people and for the sake of this world. We need to listen to what Paul is going to say here with an aptitude to believe it and an aptitude then to practice it. So the basic concern is here. Come to this passage believing in prayer and believing that the exhortation that Paul gives to Timothy to give to the church is an exhortation for all of us to be faithful in our prayers. Now, as we look at these four verses, uh, we can divide it up into four specific thoughts that we find in these verses. The first would be this. The church is called to prayer. That would be the first. The second is, the church is called to pray for all people. And then, thirdly, the motivation for the church to pray for all people lies in the heart of God who desires to see all people saved. So those are the three ideas that we find in these first four verses. So let's begin by considering the first, which is the church is called to prayer. Now, in the first chapter, we see what Timothy is saying to, Paul is saying to Timothy. Uh, Paul is basically saying, we've got bad teachers, we've got bad teaching, engage in spiritual warfare to deal with that. Now, I would have considered that the very first matter, right? The very first matter in terms of Paul's concerns and what he's writing about in the letter. I mean, it's pretty clear. But look at how chapter 2 begins. What does Paul say? First of all, then, <laughs> wait a second, was, the, was, the, uh, was, the, was chapter 1 the zero thing, and then chapter 2 begins the first thing? Uh, I think the way we could see this is that the difference and why this is the first of all, is that in chapter 1, he was addressing the things that were negatively break, breaking the church down. But here's the positive thing in terms of the positive calling to build the church up. In fact, what he's going to say in chapter 2 and then on to chapter 3 is all about the proper building up of the church in terms of our faithful practice of prayer, the faithful lives of men and women, and then the faithful calling of those who are, certainly should be leadership within the church in chapter 3 in terms of elders and deacons. So what we see here in chapter 2, we need to look at from the standpoint of, first of all, maybe means here, first of all, in terms of its greatest significance, that you, the church, would pray. So important to fight the spiritual battles against all sorts of bad teaching and all sorts of bad doctrine and men who have made shipwreck of their faith. But look... Uh, what is of first importance, what is of first significance, is that the people of God would be people who pray. And so that's what Paul is saying. He does so in an interesting way. He says, I urge then, I urge then that prayers 
Well, he starts, I urge then that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made. So he gives us sort of the broad spectrum of the different kinds of prayers that should be prayed. But notice, that which is of first importance for the edification and building up of the people of God, notice that Paul urges when he could have commanded. I I found that very significant as I'm reading through this because I'm thinking about pastors, I'm thinking about shepherds of the church, I'm thinking about their style, I'm thinking about their modus operandi, I'm thinking about how do they properly teach and shepherd the church. Paul was invested with a kind of authority that doesn't exist today in the church. Apostolic authority. Paul could have said, I command you. Paul could have said, and you do so because I say so. But instead he uses this concept of urging. It's it's that Greek word, parakaleo, that we find uh, in the noun form describes the Holy Spirit as the comforter, as the one who comes alongside. Uh, In the noun form, in the verbal form, it's used when it speaks about Jesus as our advocate and the one who advocates for us. And here the context calls it urging. Paul urges Timothy to instruct the church to be involved in prayer. Now, what is the significance of that? Well, a wise leader may understand his authority. But that authority ought almost always to be used in the context of urging the people of God in the proper way to do the right thing because they know it's the right thing to do, urging them so that their own desires are stirred up to do the right thing as opposed to commanding them and through commanding them, guilting them into doing something that their heart may not be warmed up to do at this particular point. As you pray for the search committee, as the search committee prays for their work, as they're looking for the man that God is going to use to shepherd this church and with the elders in the future, you've got to be discerning. You do not want someone who thinks his pastoral authority entitles him ever to be commanding the people of God to do this. You don't want a leader who says, do so because I say so. You never want that. You want one who is wise unto his leadership, who would be bold in exhorting and encouraging the people of God to do what God has called the people to do. Paul, an apostle, setting for Timothy, the lead pastor, an example of the kind of leadership style that Timothy needs to exercise. So we see this. Urging, not commanding. Think about the range and the scope of prayers that are being presented here. Uh, The apostle... Uh, pretty much mentions uh, not everything. He doesn't mention confession of sin here. Uh, He doesn't mention praises here. 
But he mentions those kinds of prayers that are properly offered with respect to the people of God and what the people of God are called to. And I think Matthew Henry probably has the best short little exposition of this when he points out that we have supplications, which we could say uh, asking God to deliver us from all those things that are evil and asking God to deliver people from those things that are evil. And then he goes on to prayers, which is another kind of asking of God for all the good that we need to live our lives the way we should. Uh, intercession on behalf of people, that is asking, asking God on behalf of people for the very things that they need and need to live their lives the way they should. And then thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, recognition to God for all of the mercies that we've already received. And I think it's important for us as Christians to remember the life of prayer is a life in which there are several dimensions to prayer, several species of prayer. And we ought to understand them, and we ought to use even this short little passage here as a kind of guide for the way in which we would be praying for the people of God and those beyond the people of God. Because clearly, Paul is telling Timothy, we want you to be praying beyond the congregation here. The church has a calling to pray, and that's the next part that goes into. The church has the calling to pray, not only for itself, well understood, but for all people. So that's Paul's second big point. The calling to pray for all people. Now I'm going to focus on this phrase, all people, here, because in terms of the interpretation of this passage... It's very important to understand this today and also for next week when we focus on the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man, the one who is the ransom for all. So what does this phrase, all people, mean, both in the first time it's mentioned and then in the second time it's mentioned? It's mentioned again in verse 4. All people. Well, the phrase here in the Greek, all people, uses the word all, all as a universal term. And and people will often say, well, all means all. And the response to that is, you always have to look at the context. All of the time, all of the time, you have to look at the context to determine what does all mean. Because there's very two different ways in which we use the word all. Like very two different ways in which we use use the word never. It all depends upon the context. For instance, there is the mathematical logical sense of the word all. And there the word all means every single individual and every single instance with respect to what we're talking about. It's the kind of all that we use in logical syllogisms. All crows are black. This is a crow. Therefore, this crow is black. It's how we do deductions. We take the, the, the logical form of all sometimes the mathematical form of all, and we say, every one of these kinds of things is this, and this is one of those, and therefore it too is this. That's the logical form. But in common English, as in common Greek, and there was a time when I actually had to look up every single usage of pas, panta, pan in the New Testament to see that this is so, every single instance, I looked up all of them, (laughs) the mathematical sense of all of them in the New Testament. And here's what you find. 
Far more often than not, the word all in the Greek New Testament doesn't mean all of every single individual thing. It most often means all of a kind, all of a sort, all of a manner, which is what it means in this passage. How do we know this? Well, if Paul understood all people, and he was telling the church to pray for all people, the class of all people are all of those who have lived in this world since Adam. So this would be all the people who are dead at the time that Paul is talking. It would mean all of the people currently alive while Paul is talking, writing. It would mean all the people of the future, because that's the class of, quote, all people. Does Paul say, you, the church, you need to pray for the dead by name, <laughs> all of them? How else would you pray for them? Uh, you need to pray for everybody alive now, not just in the Gre Greco-Roman Empire, not just at Ephesus, but everywhere. And you need to pray for all the people future. No. That's the mathematical understanding. That's the logical sense of the word all. That's what it would require, all people. But in the New Testament, uh, you find the word all and all people, meaning routinely all manner of people, all sorts of people, all kinds of people. Now, why should you know that that's exactly what Paul means here? Because Paul is speaking to a very fractured society where there are bigotries and prejudices, classism. Uh, there are people who are uh, at odds with one another. The Apostle Paul makes reference to this in several different places in the New Testament because he will speak of um, the Jew and the Gentile. He will speak of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He will speak of the barbarian and the Scythian. He will speak of the rich and the poor. He will speak of uh, those who are free. He will speak of masters and slaves. He'll speak of men and women, husbands and wives. And in the Greco-Roman world, every one of those double categories of people were, in fact, fractured by their prejudices, by their misplaced loyalties to their groups, whether it was a political group or a national group or a societal class uh, the the Roman the Greco-Roman world was fractured by its diversities. And these diversities of people were pitted one against another. And Paul is telling the church, you must pray for every sort of person. You must pray for all manner of people. You must not exclude any group or any kind of person from your prayers. That's why he then goes on to say, kings and all who are in authority over us. Because if, if, we, if we see that the, the kinds of things that bring about, if we see fractured societies, well, it's often the case that those who are in leadership are the ones who sometimes don't bring unity but continue to endorse or reinforce those fractured strata within society. They're the ones in power. They're the ones in control. And so Paul is, Paul is telling the people of God, pray for these 
Now, we're not immune as human beings and as Christians to the kind of feelings that a fractured society arouses within us. So one of the early church fathers, living during the time before Constantine, so the, the emperor over the Roman Empire was a heathen, as he is uh, expounding this passage, here's what he says, Christians must pray for their leaders. Christians must pray for those who rule over them because Christians must pray for those who hate them and who persecute them for this reason. As you pray for those people, you cannot long hate those for whom you earnestly pray. When you supplicate God for them, when you pray asking God's goodness for them, when you intercede on their behalf, when you give God thanks for them, you cannot long despise or hate or disrespect them. So you notice the impact of prayer then. The early church father was pointing out that such prayer transforms the people of God. The very thing that Paul says for the reason that we should pray is so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity, that very thing. Well, how does God bring that about? Uh, by making uh, heathen, believe, uh, heathen rulers uh, kind toward the church? Well, no, if you're really pray, See, here's your political action committee agenda as a Christian. What is your political outworking of your life? Pray for those who are in leadership over you. Pray for them. Pray for them diligently. Pray for them with the whole spectrum of prayer. Pray for them that you would want to live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity because that stands in stark contrast to the rest of society. Uh, a, a people within a society who are committed to peaceful and quiet lives, to godliness and to dignity, after a while, such people are going to stand out, <laughs> be noticed, seen as different, almost otherworldly. And if we have read our early church history correctly, we know that as the people of God prayed for their heathen rulers, prayed much for their heathen rulers, prayed even more for their heathen rulers under persecution, the character of the church as that peaceful, quiet, dignified, and godly group of people became that very thing that Jesus exhorted his disciples to become. Live in such a way that your good works will be clearly seen by, in essence, the world and the unbelieving world so that they might even give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The early church's testimony was as much the testimony of their lives as it ever was the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, 
The point then, in terms of praying for all and praying for those in authority, is this. There is not a kind of person at all that shouldn't be the object of our prayers. Praying for all manner of persons means that there's no kind of person that we would ever not pray for. So, what does that mean? It means that we would include in every way those that, from our Christian calling, we would find In our natural flesh, we would just simply say, I don't like them. And I don't like what they stand for. And I don't like what they're doing to our country and to our people at all. We must, to follow the urging to pray, respond with, but nevertheless, Lord, I will pray how you have called me to pray, I will pray for them. I do count them my enemies. But you said, pray for your enemies. Bless them. Don't curse them. Love your neighbor. Love even your enemies as you would love yourself. Now there's a stronger and even higher motivation in what Paul says here than even the power of our own witness with respect to those of the world. And that is identifying the motive for what Paul is saying here with the heart of God. And we find this in verse 4. In verse 4, we read that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is why we're called to pray. Our prayers are part of how God fulfills his own divine intention to save broken and sinful human beings. Now, just as the activity to pray for all people works upon our hearts, to lift our hearts up from a carnal attitude, a worldly attitude toward others, just as praying for others raises our hearts above every sort of bigotry or elitism or classism or every national or political or ethnic or racial or religious misplaced loyalty, Paul grounds prayer in the heart of God. God's own redemptive desire to see all people Saved. Now, of course, all people, a divine desire, is God's divine desire frustrated? No. God desires all people to be saved in the same manner that Paul calls the church to pray for all people. God desires all manner of people, all sorts of people, all kinds of people to be saved which then means that there's no sort of human being, no kind of human being, no manner of human being that God does not desire and design to save. We 
we know this from the testimony of Scripture. We know this. That when we all stand before Christ, there are going to be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Not just distributively in that sense. There's going to be all manner of human beings redeemed by the blood of Christ. So this means for our prayers as we look to the motivation that we find in the heart of God to see all manner of people saved, we need to think this way. There's no Muslim leader stricken with the coronavirus, as we find now in Iran, uh, the second highest leader of that country. There's no communist dictator who has impoverished millions of his own people, as we see in North Korea. There's no terrorist leader in the heart of Africa who has systematically executed men, women, and children in numerous Christian villages. There's no drag queen reading stories at public libraries. There's no presidential candidate who parades his same-sex marriage partner before American audiences. There is no kind of person beyond the desire of God to save. There's no kind of person who's beyond the power of the blood of Christ to save. There is no person who is ever beyond the call of God's people to pray. Are you convicted? I am. I'll tell you candidly. I have told more and delighted in more and read more jokes and anecdotes about my political opposition candidates than I've ever prayed. I have laughed more at political cartoons that characterized the other side of what my position happens to be than I have prayed. I'm convicted. There are people who have lived their lives in such a way that it's not my first desire to pray for them. I'm convicted. But what does the Word of God call us to do? There is no human being who fits in some kind of category that the blood of Christ does not save those kinds of people. And therefore, the people of God cannot exclude them from the prayers that we pray for a lost and broken world. So, our prayers need to follow the pattern that Paul has presented here to Timothy. Paul wants the church at Ephesus to be greatly used of God. Every Christian can participate in this great calling to pray for the broken 
lost, messed up people of this world. And to pray with perseverance. To not give up. Close with one of my other favorite stories of George Mueller. Mueller was not the kind of person you would think would get saved. He was in a Bible college in Germany, uh, going to the pubs, drinking, contrary to what Christians were supposed to be doing, uh, involved in gambling games, doing all sorts of stuff. At times, he'd been a thief. He was not the kind of person you would think that this education or this fluence or whatever is doing this man any good at all. And then he responded to a friend's invitation to go to a Bible study. And in that Bible study, the men there prayed. They prayed as though God was real. They prayed as though Jesus was a real friend. They prayed in a way that displayed that they were deeply in touch with this God that the Bible talks about. It changed George Mueller. It made him a man who not only was converted to Christ, but he believed in a God who was still deeply active in this world, deeply responsive to the prayers of his people. So the first thing that Mueller did was he thought about five of his friends who weren't Christians. And he dedicated himself to pray constantly for their salvation. In five years, one of those men had been saved. In ten years, two more of those men had been saved. In 25 years, a fourth man of those five had been saved. Then Euler went on to pray for 27 more years for his fifth friend. But 27 years. And Euler dies. He's not a Christian. A few months later, his friend became a believer. Here's an example, a strong example. Pray without ceasing. Pray for all the people that God has called us to pray for. Pray believing that God still answers prayer. Let's pray. Help us, O Lord. Help us. Help us to believe and believe so strongly that you are a great God who answers prayer. Help us to believe that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, forgiveness receives. Help us in our prayers and in our heart toward other human beings to deeply believe that there is no kind of a person who is beyond the blood of Christ 
to save and redeem. And that you are a God who delights in hearing our prayers for those who are lost. And that even as we pray more faithfully for those who don't know you, you will cause our hearts to increasingly love those that we might count as our enemies in the hope that someday we will all be gathered together in reconciliation before the throne of the Lamb. This we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.